For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Daniel chapter 12, we've been studying through what I've been calling the greatest collection of predictive prophecies in the history of the human race. We spent five straight weeks here at CT studying these, but we've had a couple of weeks off. It's, we had Christmas off. We had New Year's off. You know, we had the holidays. I'm sure we saw the Buckeyes win their bowl game. Yeah. Saw the Browns complete their perfect season. Yeah. <laughs> Brownies. All right. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just take a, a, a couple of minutes here at the beginning of this study and just recap several of the predictions that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Daniel over the past five studies. And I don't have time to prove every single one with chapter and verse, although I do have references on the screen. The point of this is if you've been here for the study, the whole thing is coming together. If you weren't here for all or part of it, I hope this will motivate you to want to go and check into this for yourself. I think especially if you're a skeptical person, it warrants checking into these teachings. We've got them all on the Xenos website, all on the Xenos app. You can listen to them wherever. But I wanted just to take a look at Daniel's predictions before we study the final chapter in the book of Daniel. Let me just run through these. I'm going to run through them quickly. You probably won't have time to take notes. But the point here is just to see the overwhelming quantity of predictions. We saw in Daniel 2, 5, and 7 the rise and fall of Babylon as a world power. This was Daniel predicting these things back in the 500s BC, 2,500 years ago. These things started to take place and they were written down. And I argued the first week of this series why we can be confident that Daniel was written in the 500s BC when it says it was written. And Daniel predicts the rise and fall of Babylon as a world power. Check. He predicts Nebuchadnezzar's temporary insanity. We saw in Daniel 4. We saw the rise of the, the subsequent empire, the Medo-Persian empire, in, from the east to replace Babylon. Check. We saw that the Medes in that empire would rise up first and the Persians would come up next, even though they were both one empire. Saw that one took place. We saw the very night of the fall of Babylon predicted in Daniel 5. Check. We saw the rise of Greece in the west to replace the Persians, just like Scripture predicted. We saw that Greece's first king, Alexander, would be mighty but cut off suddenly in his prime. Yep, got that one. Alexander's Greece was split into four empires. Check. Antiochus IV would rise out of one of the offshoots of the Greek Empire and that he would viciously persecute the Jews. Check. Antiochus would rise through intrigue. Check. Antiochus would attack the Jews unexpectedly. Daniel 8. Check. Antiochus would stop temple sacrifices for 1150 days. Check. We saw that Antiochus IV would desecrate the temple through an abomination. We saw that Antiochus would not die in human hands, but through some other cause. Number 15, that God would send the Jews back to Israel sometime after Babylon's fall. Daniel 9. Check. We saw number 16, the Jews would rebuild their temple upon returning. Check. We saw number 17, the Roman Empire would replace the Greek Empire. Check. We saw that the Romans would possess a military might the world had never before seen. Check. We saw that a king would issue a decree to rebuild the defenses of Jerusalem. Daniel 9. Check. <laughs> we saw that 476 years would pass between that decree and the coming of the Messiah in 33 AD. Check. Daniel 9. We saw the Messiah would be killed, apparently accomplishing nothing. Check. We saw that the Romans would destroy Jerusalem and the temple after the Messiah's death. That happened in 70 AD. Check mark. In addition to all these, John Walvert, Bible scholar, says Daniel 11, 1 through 34, contains approximately 135 prophetic statements all now fulfilled. 
So this is really number 23 through 158. <laughs> but I'm only going to count it as one, okay? <laughs> so I don't want to be accused of padding my stats or anything. But that one, read it for yourself. That nations descended from the fallen Roman Empire would retain their identities and reunite a fragile coalition in the last days. Check. We saw that the Roman coalition would be capable of becoming the most powerful nation in the world. And, and we, you know, I'm not saying the EU is Rome too. I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying is this is plausible that Europe could retain their identity, get back together in a powerful coalition. Check. Number 26, that the final world, world ruler, a.k.a. the Antichrist, will arise from this Roman coalition. Okay, that one says ready with a thumbs up. It hasn't happened yet. But the stage is set. You can see where this would happen, right? We saw the Antichrist will rule over the entire world. Again, this hasn't happened yet, but the stage is set for this. Things are ready in a way that it simply wouldn't have been 50 years ago even. The, and without, and the, I don't have time to go into these. Get the teaching, okay, if you missed it. Or remember the teaching if you were there. The Antichrist will control everyone's purchasing power by assigning people a number. We talked about this. It would have been crazy even 30 or 40 years ago. Now, the stage is set. The technology is there. We saw the Jews will be regathered as a nation in the land of Israel and will regain control of Jerusalem. That one is a check. They're back. We also saw the Jews will rebuild their temple and it will be functioning again. That one is not a check mark, but they're ready. They've got all the stuff. The Jews would sure like to do that. There's this there's a pretty thorny political situation in the Middle East, all right? But what Scripture says is somehow the temple's going to be running again in the end times. The humans, number 31, would develop weapons capable of wiping out all life. Check mark. We've got that many times over. That the final world war will center on the Middle East and Israel, number 32. And is that really that hard to believe? We're totally ready for that, okay? And that the fall of both the Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire will coincide with the return of Christ. And that obviously hasn't happened yet. But boy, you really wonder how much longer that's going to be. That's the thing that's really struck me as we've studied through this book. These things are happening. It's speeding up. It's happening at an alarming pace. And so we've got these predictions. Remarkable why does God give us so much predictive prophecy? It's so we can know the messages from him. These are things we can check. It was future when it was written, but now we can look back and see the incredible accuracy. And he's trying to tell you about what will happen in the next life. There's, there's things you can't verify, but because there are things we can verify, it gives us confidence in the message. It gives us faith that has reasons, that has evidence. He's trying to give you a warning and an offer of eternal life with him. I just summarized 33 major predictions, and we still have to cover Daniel 12 tonight. So let's do it. Daniel chapter 12. Remember, Daniel 11, we studied a couple weeks ago, last time we were here, it told the story of the Antichrist and the final world war. It filled out more detail on that. Tonight, we'll learn just a little more detail about the end of the world as we know it, as the song says, and then we'll learn about what comes next after the end of the world as we know it which is a topic of eternal interest. So the end of the world as we know it, I think I'm going to have to finally bust out a timeline here, an end times timeline. A picture's worth a thousand words. There's our timeline, all right? I'll fill in a little more detail here. 
There's a final world war spanning a period of time. Antichrist is at the center of it. We talked about this last time. We know that's going to run right up to the return of Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus returns to defeat the Antichrist. That much has been established so far in our Daniel study. I want to let a little more detail over this by just jumping back a previous vision to Daniel 9.27, where it's talking about the Antichrist. And what it said, I don't think we got to this verse when we studied Daniel 9, it says that the Antichrist will confirm a treaty with many for one seven-year period. This is our last seven-year period we didn't talk about when we studied Daniel 9. And so there's a seven-year period that also, apparently, runs right up to the end of the world. It concludes at the same time as this final world war. It also says there's some sort of a peace treaty that the Antichrist is going to strike. It's going to be this, this monument to human progress. Finally, we got world peace, you know, so we're going to have... Shortly before the greatest war the world's ever seen, the final one, we're going to have a time of world peace. And everybody's going to be like, yeah, man, we did it. Whoa, cool. Go humanity. Antichrist is going to bring this in. That's why people are going to be so into this guy. He's going to do, people are going to be so hungry for peace, they're going to give up rights. They're going to give up even economic control because they just feel like we, ha we have to just give this up because this is the only way we're going to be safe. Well, Daniel 9.27 goes on and says, in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Something happens in the middle of this seven-year period. He says, at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. And so this abomination of desolation that we see referred to in various places in Scripture, this apparently is the act where the Antichrist shows his true colors, where things turn from peace to war. And that's a war that never ends, a war that God himself has to intervene and say, enough to keep human life from being wiped out. Of course, that war is going to run right up, it says, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And that's, that's this right here. We've talked about this. Jesus returns to defeat the Antichrist. You see how these different passages correlate with one another. It's too big to ever fit into one place. That's why I love to spend so much time on this at CT and have a night like tonight where we can pull it all together. Synthesis. We're synthesizing things here. So if we tuck our timeline up at the top of the screen then, we'll come back to that. The next verse in Daniel 12.1 says this. It says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. So there's some sort of angelic thing that happens here. Michael is an angel. He's one of two angels named in Scripture. He shows up a handful of times. There's something that, that he and others do in the angelic realm. It, it doesn't really tell us. There's one theory is, is another passage that mentions him in Revelation 12. It's some kind of war between the angels. I don't know if that's what's happening here, but you can read Revelation 12 for yourself if you want. But Daniel tells us that what happens as a result of this is that there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. The greatest time of suffering ever. And that... That's saying something. You look at human misery now, and he says that's going to be nothing compared to the suffering of the end times. That is a time that is also known as the Great Tribulation. And this is the time period, the final three and a half years of human history, is the worst time to live. The time of the most agonizing suffering. It's going to be especially bad for the people of God. But that is the Great Tribulation, that final three and a half year period. 
And notice Daniel's order here. He says the Antichrist commits the abomination and then the great tribulation and great final world war and then the end. Now let's compare this to what Jesus teaches on the same subject. I'm just going to read a couple verses. And I, I love this because Jesus, he's quoting Daniel here when he gives his order of events for the end times. Let me just show you a couple verses. Matthew 24. He says, the day is coming. Jesus is talking here. It's right before he dies. When you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. So he says, Daniel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into Daniel here, Jesus says, just like we've been doing. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, I want you to watch for that. And so you've got the Antichrist, this person standing in the holy place. Yeah, the Antichrist himself enters into the temple. He sets himself up as God. It looks like maybe he put, bases his headquarters out of there. I don't know. But he goes in in this brazen move, sets himself up as God according to the, the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, and desecrates the temple. And that, that is the spark that sets things afire according to Jesus. And Matthew even says at this point, hey, let the reader understand. Reader, pay attention, Matthew writes. He's like, are you listening? This is of utmost importance. We've got Daniel, the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. He says, at that point, those in Judea must flee to the hills. He says, you don't want to be anywhere near Jerusalem when this suffering comes down. Get out of there. There's still time when you see the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. It's almost word for word, Daniel 12.1 in there. The great tribulation. Jesus goes on, he says, in fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. God is going to be the one to intervene and put this war to an end. And how will he intervene? Well, Jesus says a few verses later, well, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Another quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And so Jesus has the same order, Antichrist, abomination in the temple, and then he's got the great tribulation launched, the war is launched, and then God intervenes by sending the Messiah just at the last moment. In fact, if he waited any longer, all life would have been lost. But he doesn't. He comes just in time. So this time of distress, it's a three and a half year period. We read this in Daniel 7, 25. We're going to read it again later tonight in Daniel 12, 6, and 7. It's a three and a half year period, this suffering time. And then he says, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And so what is this book that he's talking about? This is a book that we find in various places in scripture, a book known as the book of life. It comes in conjunction with the end times and really throughout. This is, I don't think it's a physical book with written paper and pen, but it's a record that God keeps. And what does this book have in it? Well, it has everyone who will be delivered. It's the list of all the people that get into heaven. You know, back in ancient times, a city would keep a, a book, a, a record of the people who are citizens of that city. And if you were in the, in the book, then you got in. And God says, I got one for heaven. It's a record of people that belong there. And he's, he, knows, he knows the future before it happens. And so he knows everybody who's, who's going to end up in heaven. And so all those names, it says, are written in that book from even before the beginning of time. It's because he knows how you'll respond to Christ's offer. But the book of life, it's not a list of good people. 
It's not like good people go to heaven and bad people don't get in. No, there are no, nobody, there's nobody good enough to go to heaven except for Jesus. No, it's a list of forgiven people. Jesus Christ died. He offers his death in your place. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed by him. You can have your name entered into the book of life. When you receive Christ, if you ask him to take the penalty for your sins, your name's entered into the book of life and you are a citizen of heaven. And that's never going to be taken away. What an awesome offer from God. That's a, that's a decision you can make tonight. You can get your name in the book and you can know you will be delivered when the world comes to an end. Daniel says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Weird. <laughs> well, sleeping was a metaphor for death. It's not like people who are just lying there homeless, sleeping on the ground, will wake up. No, he's saying people who have died, who've been buried. And so what scripture teaches is that when you die, there's a part of you that's physical and there's a part of you that's spiritual. And those two parts are separated for a time. Your body stays, it turns back into, you know, dust. Your spirit, on the other hand, the soul goes to somewhere else. It's either a place with God or a place without God, depending on whether your name's in the book of life. And then, at the end of the world, your body is made new, and then it's rejoined with your soul forever to face final judgment which he's going to go on to talk about. But the resurrection of the body, this is a, a teaching in the Old Testament. You can see it right here. It's expanded upon in the New Testament. We're going to get some more detail. We'll see in a moment. But notice Daniel's language. It's a little bit strange. He says, many will awake. You'd expect him to say everybody because everybody is resurrected. But he lays it out in kind of a weird way. He says, many will awake. These to everlasting life but others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so he groups the resurrection into two different groups of people. Some rise to eternal life. Others rise to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we need to talk about both of these situations here. Revelation 20 gives a little bit more detail as to, why, as to this resurrection, that it's not just one resurrection that happens at the same time. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, the believers came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, we learn, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Weird. So, I never knew this. There's a thousand year period when Christ comes back. At the beginning of that, believers get their bodies back. At the end of that, non-believers get their bodies back. And so there's a gap between these two resurrections. He says, this one's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. That's the one you want to be a part of. The second death has no power over them. Yes, if you're in the first resurrection, you will only ever die exactly once. Scripture talks about the second death, which we'll talk about in a moment. And so some awake to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Revelation 20 tells a little bit more about the latter group here, the group whose names are not in the book of life. I just want to read a couple verses. It's, he's, John says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And so John gets this vision of the dead who are resurrected, 
standing before the throne of God. This is the latter group, the ones that are woken up to everlasting shame and contempt. John says, and the books were opened. We've seen these books in Daniel 7. But this book, you can just imagine a stack of books as far and as high as the eye can see. What's in these books? Well, there's, there's actually another kind of book here. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Remember the book of life? So there's two types of books, the books and the book. The books and the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Apparently, God keeps track of everything you do, everything you think, and everything you say. There are detailed records of your life, believe it or not, in heaven. And now, what all of the secrets, he says, are going to be exposed for all to see when the final, when the end comes. The dead are judged according to what they had done. I would not want to stand up to that judgment. Thank God my name is in the book of life. Because I do not, I could not stand based on what I have done. God's standard is perfection. And you know, sample charges that might be found in the books, well, adultery, murder, and lying, those might be some. You might be saying, well, I'm doing okay on that. Although adultery of the heart, murder of the heart, lying in the heart, those would be sins as well. God knows about those. Failure to do the good you knew you should have done. James says that's a sin. If you know some good you should do and you don't do it, selfishness. Pride over the good that you did do. What about religious pride? We're proud of all the works we did. We're proud of all the times we went to church and all the rituals we did and all the prayers we said. God says that's pride too. Failure to thank God in gratitude is a grievous sin that happens every day. Failure to act from faith for the glory of God. Failure to love God and other people with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is a really bad sin, according to God. That's the greatest commandment. Violate that one all the time. Failure to ask for God's forgiveness, for his mercy. That's truly the one unforgivable sin. The rest of these could be forgiven if you receive Christ and got your name in the book of life. But if not, that's just going to be one more that'll be on the list. This list, he says... I don't know how long this is going to take. But, he says, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, that's what Daniel's saying when he says they'll awake to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. Those are really strong, really negative terms. I don't like talking about this, but when it comes up right here in Daniel, I feel like there's no way around it. We've got to talk some about hell. Hell. It's, it's denied by many Bible teachers. They, they don't like it, and they basically edit it right out of the Scripture. They avoid the passages that talk about it. It's not a pleasant thing to talk about. Hell. You know, I don't know if you ever wonder, you look at the evil in the world, and you wonder, if there's a God, how can he let this go on? You ever wonder that? We're like, where is God? Why don't you do something? Well, the Bible says is that God promises that he's not slow, but he's being patient. He's giving people a chance to turn to Christ, but at the end, he will finally judge evil. He will finally do something to right the wrongs. And that's what happens at this final judgment. 
See, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked in Ezekiel 33, 11. He doesn't want that. He wants you to get your name in the book of life. But if you don't want it in there, if you're saying, I think I'll stand on my works, if you're too proud to receive Christ's forgiveness, then he's going to say, okay, have it your way. There are no second chances. There's no working, working off your sins when you get there. It's, it's, have you received Christ or not? Is your name in the book of life or not? And there are various descriptions of hell throughout Scripture. Norm Geisler, I think, says this pretty succinctly. He says, nowhere in the Bible does it describe hell as a torture chamber where people are forced against their will to be tortured. It's a caricature created by unbelievers who justify their reaction that the God who sends people to hell is cruel. It does not mean hell is not a place of torment. Jesus said it was. But unlike torture, which is inflicted from without against one's will, torment is self-inflicted. Even atheists like Sartre have suggested that the door of hell is locked from the inside. We're condemned to our own freedom from God. Heaven's presence of the divine would be torture to one who has irretrievably rejected him. Torment is living with the consequences of our own bad choices. It's the weeping of gnashing of teeth that results from the realization that we blew it and deserve the consequences. Just as a football player may pound on the ground in agony after missing a play that loses the Super Bowl, so those in hell know that the pain they suffer is self-induced. He says hell is depicted as a place of eternal fire, but he says the fire is real but not necessarily physical as we know it because people will have imperishable physical bodies so normal fire just would not affect them. It's not a pleasant topic. The Bible brings it up by way of warning and accompanies it with the offer of forgiveness. Finally, some may ask, what right does God have to send people to hell? And I think that question, it, it just shows our problem. We don't realize how bad our sin is or how much God has done to rescue us. We're just so used to living with it. You know, to reject his offer of his only son, to fall that far short of his standard. God says, something's got to be done about that. I can't just look the other way. It also ignores the power of free choice that God has given us. As C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. God says, I'm giving you a choice here. You have a choice tonight. What will you choose? There's a lot more that could be said about this subject, but we don't have time. We've got some reading, though, that you can do if this is something you'd like to read about more. We can talk about it afterward as well. But this is one of the groups that resurrected to an eternity apart from God. On the other hand, though, he says there's another group, those whose names are in the book of life, who are resurrected to everlasting life, eternal life, an awesome eternity with God. And this resurrection, here, it's not real specific. As we read the New Testament, we see the resurrection is a multi-stage resurrection. There are multiple parts to this resurrection, and I want to just, I want to try to lay this out for you here. The first one, the way I read it, happens before this final seven-year period. It's an event called the rapture by theologians. There's a few passages in the, Old, in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and following 
that teach that Jesus Christ is going to come and get believers who are alive before this final terrible time of suffering. There's a lot more passages that indicate that he's going to come and get his church before this final period of suffering. But it looks like in an instant of time, it says believers will be translated from mortal to immortal. And we'll go and we'll be with Christ forever. And we'll wait out this final terrible time of suffering, not here on earth, but where Christ is. And so that's, those are the first, I mean, Jesus was the first resurrection. This apparently is the next stage. We're Christians, we get our new bodies, both living and dead Christians get their new bodies before this final seven-year period. Then when Jesus returns, the Old Testament believers are raised. Believers who died during this great tribulation, they are raised as well. And we go on into this final thousand-year period that we read about, which again, I don't have time to say too much about tonight, but you should at least know it's there. At the end of that, that's the resurrection of unbelievers that we read about there in Revelation chapter 20. And then the final judgment. And that's when eternity begins. The point, though, is the afterlife is a physical place where we'll have new bodies. That's one of the main applications of the resurrection is to understand, you know, we've developed this view of the afterlife where we're these, these ghosts floating around on clouds playing ethereal harps. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's a real place God's going to remake the world. He's going to remake your body. It's not going to be ravaged by the negative effects of all that's happened here. And you're going to live forever on an eternal world. And so it's, it's a very physical place, a very real place. Randy Alcorn says, this present life then is not our last chance to eat, drink, and be merry. It's the last time our eating, drinking, and merrymaking can be corrupted by sin, death, and the curse. And so what awaits is actually pleasures untold. It's the world the way it should be and not in its present broken state. The world is broken. Daniel says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. There's a a glory here that Jesus showed a little bit when he was here. He had moments of it. We're going to have some sort of awesomeness. Uh, radiating from us in heaven. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's, it, you can tell it's just reaching. It, it's, it's beyond language to really describe the fullness of heaven. But the angel says to Daniel, you roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Seal it up. It's not seal it up so you can hide it from people. It's to seal it up to preserve it. It's going to be the official copy of this revelation, Daniel. And there'll be other copies made of it as well. But he says, this, this is done. He says, Daniel. Daniel's 90 years old at this point. He's lived a long life. He's received many visions from God. And now God says to him, Daniel, you're done. You're done with your ministry. Seal it up. Roll it up. This is all you're going to get for the rest of your life. Many will go here and there. Knowledge will increase. Here and there is kind of a term for searching, searching out knowledge. And it does say knowledge will increase. Knowledge is going to increase, especially as the end gets closer and closer. 
we're in a better position in some senses to understand these prophecies than even Daniel was. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river, one on the opposite bank. Remember, this is all a vision. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was hovering above the waters of the river, he said, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? This man clothed in linen is probably the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. It's one of the angels asks Jesus, how long until this is all going to end? And the man clothed in linen who was above the waters, he lifted his right hand and his left hand. He's really taking an oath here. And then I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for time, times, and half a time. It's a phrase you're going to want to get familiar with if you're going to study Bible prophecy. We saw it before. He says, it's when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all of these things will be completed. And so he's talking about, again, this, this final period of suffering, this great tribulation. And Daniel says, I heard, but I didn't understand. And that's encouraging to me. <laughs> I'm going to say that a few verses from now. <laughs> um, this was confusing to Dana. He didn't, he didn't understand it all. And he said it. He's just honest about it. And so I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. He says, I told you we're done. Go your way. Live your life, man. Many will be purified, made spotless, refined. The wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. I hope there's some of those here in this room, some of the wise understanding. And then Daniel says, from the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days? I thought it was 1,260 days. We said that about eight different times. And then Daniel, thanks a lot, drops this on us in the last couple verses of his book. <laughs> a new time period that we have no idea what to do with. It's 30 days longer than that last three and a half year period. 30 days past 1,260, but then it gets worse. And then he says, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days, which is another 45 days. So we've got 75 extra days here. We've got to do something with <laughs> after the return of Christ. What the best explanation I've run across for this is this is probably the time after Jesus comes back where there's some things that need to be taken care of. There's some judgments, there's some rewards, there's the setting up of his government. I mean, if you think about the U.S. government, the election is in early November. The new president doesn't take office until late January. That's actually about 75 days, about two and a half months, right? So it takes time. There's a changing of the guard here. That's probably what Daniel's talking about. And what he's saying is, if you make it all the way to the 1335, you're golden. It means you're in. It means you're blessed. Must have been in the book of life. And so, Messiah is going to take that time to set up his kingdom. And he says, But as for you, Daniel, go your way until the end. And you will rest. And then at the end of the days, you'll rise again to receive the inheritance 
set aside for you. And so he says, Daniel, pretty soon you're going to be one of those that sleep in the dust of the ground. And then you will rest. And your soul will go to be with Christ. Your body will then be raised in the last day. And then you will rise again. You will wake with the rest of those who will be blessed. And you will receive the inheritance set aside for you. So I'd like to spend the rest of our time just talking a little bit about this inheritance. And I can't stop quoting Randy Alcor when I teach on heaven. I've got a couple longer quotes from him I just want us to ponder here as we draw this to a conclusion. In his book on heaven, he says, our belief, this is one question people have, will heaven be boring? He says, our belief heaven will be boring betrays a heresy that God is boring and there's no greater nonsense. Our desire for pleasure and the experience of joy come directly from God's hand. He made our taste buds, our adrenaline, our sex drives, the nerve endings that convey pleasure to our brains. Why do you think he gave you all those? Was this you can like do accounting? <laughs> He's a God who loves fun and enjoyment. Our imaginations, our capacity for joy, our exhilaration were made by the very God we accuse of being boring. Are we so arrogant to imagine that human beings came up with the idea of having fun? <laughs> Want to be boring to be good all the time? Someone asked. <laughs> Note the assumption, sin's exciting and righteousness is boring. We've fallen for the devil's lie. His most basic strategy, the same one he employed with Adam and Eve, is to make us believe that sin brings fulfillment. However, in reality, sin robs us of fulfillment. It doesn't make life interesting. It makes life empty. And you know this is true. It doesn't create adventure, it blunts it, it doesn't expand life, it shrinks it. Sins and emptiness inevitably leads to boredom. When there's fulfillment, when there's beauty, when we see God as he truly is, an endless reservoir of fascination, boredom becomes impossible. Those who believe that excitement can't exist without sin are thinking with sin-poisoned minds. Drug addicts are convinced that without their drugs they can't live happy lives. We're just like them. He says, as everyone can see, their drugs make them miserable. Freedom from sin will mean freedom to be what God intended, freedom to find far greater joy in everything. And heaven will be filled, as Psalm 1611 describes it, with joy and eternal pleasures. Let, your mind, let that sink into your mind. Another people, he says, that people assume heaven's boring is that their Christian lives are boring. <laughs> That's not God's fault, it's their own. <laughs> That's really true. God calls us to follow him in an adventure that should put us on life's edge. He's infinite in creativity, goodness, beauty, and power. We think of ourselves as fun-loving and as God as a humorless killjoy. We got it backward. It's not God who's boring. It's us. <laughs> did we invent wit, humor, and laughter? No, God did. We'll never begin to exhaust God's sense of humor and his love for adventure. The real question is, how could God not be bored with us? But he's not. He's delighted in us. And he longs to spend eternity with you. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he says this about the reunion we'll have in heaven. If we've known one another here, we'll know one another there. All right, we retain our identities and can recognize each other in heaven. I used to worry about that. I don't anymore. Scripture teaches the opposite. 
will know who we are. I have dear departed friends up there, and it is always a sweet thought to me that when I shall put my foot, as I hope I may, upon the threshold of heaven, there will come my sisters and brothers to clasp me by the hand and say, yes, my loved one, at last you are here. Dear relatives who have been separated from you, these you'll meet again in heaven. One of you's lost a mother. She's gone above. And if you follow the track of Jesus, you'll see her there. We'll recognize our friends. Husband, you'll know your wife again. Mother, you will know those dear babes of yours. You memorize their features when they lay panting and gasping for breath. You know how you hung over their graves when the cold sod was sprinkled over them and it was set earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But you shall hear those sweet voices evermore. You shall yet know that those whom you loved have been loved by God. What are we saying here? At the end of all the prophecy that we studied, what are we to conclude? This question, what are you going to do with all these fulfilled prophecies? You've seen them. I gave a brief summary tonight. Distilling five hours into five minutes. What about it? What do you think? Is God the God who declares the end from the beginning or not? He says he's done this so you will know that he is the Lord. What are you going to do with these? If scripture has been right this often about the predictions, we can check. Doesn't it make sense to pay closer attention to the ones that we can't check yet? You see, God is making you an offer. What he's offering you is eternal life with him in a new body on a recreated earth. He's going to wipe all the tears away. There's going to be no more death or crying or sorrow or pain because, look, he's making all thing, things new, he says. It's eternity that's relational. It's with him. It's with your brothers and sisters in Christ where you'll experience pleasure and joy as it was intended. And you'll do all that in a context that will never end, and you'll never taste death again. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in the end of his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. Here's how he describes the beginning of heaven. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Don't miss out on real life. Don't sit through a teaching on heaven and then find that you're unable to go there. Get your name into the book of life. Experience this that the Bible promises. And that's it for Daniel. 
Let's pray. Yes, Lord, you sure have told the end from the beginning. That's something that really has stuck out to me over this, this series we've been studying, over tonight's teaching. I'm thankful that you tell us what the very end's going to be like, too. That we're not left to wonder and fret over what eternity is going to look like, but that we can know what it will be like, and we can know, most importantly, how we can be assured to have a place in your eternal plan. Lord, I, I pray that those of us who are suffering right now, Lord, that we would fix our eyes on the unseen. Um, based on the evidence you've given us, Lord, we've got plenty of evidence to believe what you've said about eternity. I, I pray that we would, we would plant our, our hope there and view the rest of life in light of that eternity. And I pray, God, for people here who aren't sure if their names are in the book of life, I pray that they would do the simple act of coming to you with the empty hands of faith and simply asking you to put their name in the book of life. You say you're delighted to do that. You say you sent your son to do that, and that's because of the joy set before him. You want a relationship with that person. So I pray they would do that, and they would enter into the path that leads to eternal life. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.